so nice to see uh, all the smiling faces this morning. You know, I looked out and I was having trouble identifying that what that big orange ball in the sky was. Yeah, it's the sun. But uh, and maybe someday it'll actually get warm again. You never know. I want to begin this morning by asking a question. What happens when reality does not live up to our expectations? Very often in life, we have this vision of our minds of the way things should be. And unfortunately, it's not unusual to find ourselves disappointed or maybe even sad, maybe even angry because things didn't turn out the way that we wanted or expected. You Cub fans can probably relate. little shot at the Cub fans. I can do that, though, because I don't hate. I don't hate. I actually don't do baseball at all. And if you guys want to throw it back at me about my Hawks, I can take it. I can take it. But I do like to rattle you Cub fans. Some of my best friends are Cub fans. My daughter is a Cub fan. I don't know how that happened, but she is. Speaking of my daughter... Ah, you didn't know I was going to be talking about you today, did you? I remember when she was growing up, she played softball. She was a softball player. And one year, she ended up on one of those you might call like dream teams. I mean, this team was just loaded with talent. They had great pitching, which was key. They had good defense. They had good hitting all up and down the lineup. And as the regular season went along, it became clear that no one was going to beat them. And they finished the regular season undefeated. And then came the playoffs. And everyone expected them to cruise through the playoffs, finish this perfect season as champions. And it looked that way as the playoffs began. They made it to the championship game. And everyone expected that they were going to win this game. The parents expected it. The kids expected it. The other teams expected it. They were matched up against a team that they had beat twice already in the regular season. And not just beat. I mean, they beat them bad. Well, I guess you've, uh, excuse me. I'll continue now. I'm sure you've guessed by now that I'm telling you this story because they lost. And yes, there was a lot of crying. There was there was disappointment. There was anger. There was the throwing of gloves and the throwing of equipment. And that was just the parents. <laughs> you guys have been to kids' sports game. You know parents are the worst. But look, the kids were incredibly disappointed. The other teams were surprised. But that was the reality. That perfect season that the kids and the parents wanted and that everyone expected didn't happen. Can you think of a time when reality did not match up with your expectations? 
And we're not talking just about sports. Really, we're talking about all of life. Maybe you expected getting a certain job or maybe admission into a particular school. Or you expected a good grade on a project or a raise. Or you wanted and, and expected a relationship to turn in your favor. We want things the way we want them. But things don't always turn out the way we expect. They don't always turn out the way we want. And today, we continue in our study of the life of Jesus, and we've been looking very closely at some of the significant events leading up to Holy Week. And we've been looking at these events to see what it is that we can learn from them. Now, our survey began at the very start of Jesus' earthly ministry. We looked at his baptism. And we saw that shortly after that, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he was tempted by Satan three times. And we learned that these two events are very closely related, both in time and in purpose. See, Jesus was baptized and tempted in order to be identified with us as sinners, identified with the people he came to save. These things happened, as Matthew writes in chapter 3, to fulfill all righteousness and to identify Jesus as the one and only Messiah, the Son of God. Remember, that is the theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He wrote this gospel to point to Jesus as the one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Now, we also saw Jesus call his first disciples. And we came to understand that he is calling us today as well. We are called. We're called to follow. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to then go and fish for people. And we're called, friends, to trust Jesus no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. We studied what it means to be an enemy of Jesus. And we learned that there's no halfway, there's no lukewarm. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either gathering or scattering. There's no halfway. And we saw that Jesus is constantly challenging this, us with this question, who do you say I am? And it's a question that we're going to wrestle with again today because it is in our scripture for today. And how we answer that question is extremely important and it has eternal consequences. And last week, if you were with us, you recall that we enjoyed that incredible mountaintop experience when Jesus was transfigured before our very eyes. And we beheld the glory, the glory of the one and only Son, the glory, the future glory of Jesus that we too will participate in for all eternity. Today, we turn our attention to Jesus as he arrives at his destination. He arrives at Jerusalem. We are looking at the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. 
Now our scripture for this morning is found in Matthew chapter 21. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, our focus is going to be on verses 1 through 11. And if you recall last week, we said that the transfiguration that we looked at, that was a very pivotal point in Jesus' ministry. Because from then on, Jesus' focus was on the reason that he came to earth. His focus turned to the cross. Remember, he told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. And he told them that he must suffer and that he must die. And that he will be raised again. But the disciples, you know, this didn't sit well with them. It didn't sit well with them at all. It wasn't what they expected. They were looking for a warrior, right? They were looking for a savior that would establish the kingdom of Israel on earth. But as we read during that journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus tells them two more times, two more times that he's going to die. He's going to be killed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. But that he'll be raised again. But, you know, the disciples are still not getting it. Despite the fact that Jesus has told them three times, they're still not grasping the truth about what Jesus was saying. And we see this near the end of chapter 20. Near the end of chapter 20, we see James and John, they come to Jesus with a request. Actually, they come with their mom. They put mommy up to this, right? And she comes and she has a request of Jesus. She requests that her sons, James and John, have prominent positions in Jesus' future kingdom. She asks that one sit at his right hand and one sit at his left hand. And when Jesus responds, you notice that he doesn't answer their mother. He turns and he talks to them. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. And he asks them, can you drink the cup I am about to drink? Now, what is Jesus talking about when he's, when, he, when he's referring to this cup? What is the cup that he refers to, the cup he's about to drink? It's, his, it's suffering and baptism, right? The crucifixion. Exactly. And James and John, they say, yeah, we can do that. See, they, they didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. And they probably didn't want to understand because he had told them about this crucifixion three times now. Well, let's get into our story because we have a lot to learn from this triumphal entry. And there's food waiting, right? Verse 1, Matthew writes this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her, by her, untie them and bring them to me. So Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're, they're nearing the city of Jerusalem, which is the city of David, the city of the great king, 
You know, Jerusalem is the center of all religious life for the Israelites. This is where it all happens. This is where all the festivals are and where all the feasts are. And Bethphage, which is where they're at right now, that's less than a mile, maybe about a half a mile from Jerusalem. And it sits on the southeast slopes of the Mount of Olives. And from that vantage point, you can look out over the temple area. And it's here that Jesus gives his disciples an assignment. He tells them, go. Find these two animals and bring them to me. Now, if we stop to really think about this for a minute, does this make a lot of sense? You know, they had just walked from Galilee to Bethphage, which is about 80 miles. Do we really believe that Jesus needs a ride for that last half mile? No, he does not. This is going to happen for a greater purpose. And we'll find out about that in a minute. But what's, this is what I want us to focus on for just a second here, okay? Because does Jesus ever tell us to go? Absolutely, right? We know in general he tells us to go. We find that in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. There Jesus tells us to go and what? Make disciples, right? Baptize people. Teach them all that I've commanded you. But does he ever give us specific tasks? You betcha. Tasks like go and comfort that person that's hurting. Go and help that family that doesn't have enough to eat. Go and minister to that person who just lost their spouse. Go and volunteer to help in children's ministry or youth ministry or tech booth. Yes, he does. He gives us specific instructions. He may even be prompting you right now. He may be working in your heart and working in your mind right now, telling you to go. The question is, how are you going to respond? Because this is important to God. Are you going to put it on the back burner? You know, oh, I'll worry about that another time, you know, and then maybe forget about it. Or are you going to go? So Jesus tells these two disciples to go. But then in verse 3, he says, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. So Jesus here, he plainly refers to himself as Lord. He refers to himself as the sovereign God who is orchestrating all of these events. And this is in sharp contrast to what we've seen Jesus do in the past, right? Most of the time it's don't tell people who I am. Don't tell people what I've done. Because it's time was not near. Now his time is near, and he's beginning to unveil the reality of who he is and why he came. So this, this, this man with the donkey, you ever wonder about him? Well, some commentators say that he was some kind of like a secret disciple, you know? Like Jesus knew him somehow, 
or he knew Jesus, at least knew him very well, well enough that if there was a request from Jesus, he would have been obedient to that. But most commentators believe, and I believe, that this was a supernatural event. A supernatural event. This was the Holy Spirit working in this man, working in him to make him amenable to following, allowing the disciples to take these two animals. No question. So here's another question for you guys. Full of questions today. Are we sensitive to what God requires of us? More importantly, when the Holy Spirit does come to us and make us aware of something that God requires of us, are we willing to part with it? Are we willing to part with what is dear to us when the Lord has need of it? Friends, I pray that we would be willing. No, I pray that we would be filled with joy to part with what Jesus requires of us, no matter what it is. Time, talent, treasures, donkeys, cars, houses. I don't care what it is. If the Lord requires it, we should be willing to give it. And then in verse 4, Matthew writes in very typical Matthew fashion, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus walked everywhere he went. We just, we just talked about the fact that he walked all the way from Galilee to Bethphage, 80 miles. This is the only recorded event where he's riding on an animal. Why? Clearly, this is a deliberate act, so we know there's a purpose behind it. And verse 4 tells us why. Jesus plans to enter Jerusalem riding on this colt to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. In this act, Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. The prophecy says, your king comes to you, not as expected, not as expected, but lowly, riding on a foal. You know, it's the same way that Jesus came into this world, right? His first triumphal entry, if you will, when he was born. He didn't arrive to royalty. He wasn't born to, to great fanfare. He was born in a stable. He was born to humble parents. The expectation is that a king would be born in a palace. The expectation is that a king would enter a city on a mighty steed wielding a sword. But not on a donkey. But friends, Jesus did not come to fulfill expectations. He came to fulfill what? All righteousness. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His entrance here on a donkey proclaims his servant ministry as the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. So Jesus has given these two disciples an assignment. And we know from verse 4 why he's given this assignment. Verse 6 says this, The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now, before we move on, I have to ask another question. Does this sound like the disciples? Kind of no. I mean, it certainly doesn't sound like Peter, right? I mean, I can imagine the conversation with Peter. You know, go to the next town and get these animals. Peter would be like, why do we have to go to the next town? Why can't we find them right here? You know, or, yeah, we just walked 80 miles. Can't we just, like, wait until tomorrow or something like that? You know? We've seen in the past, we've seen in the past that the disciples have not always responded to Jesus with unquestioning obedience. But here, here, they recognize Jesus as Lord, and they do what he says. So which way do we go when Jesus gives us an assignment? Even one that seems maybe a little crazy or doesn't make any sense. Do we obey without questioning or do we make excuses and rationalize why we shouldn't or why it wouldn't work? You know, <laughs> a number of years ago, when I first sensed a call to ministry, I said no. I said, no, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy. I am busy. I'm busy. I'm, I'm busy with my career. I'm busy with my family. I'm busy making money. Besides, I'm not a pastor. Come on, I'm not a preacher. I said no. And friends, I never expected to be where I am today. But what does that tell you? about God's plans and our expectations. God's plan wins. We must obey, friends. We must obey. We must obey all that Jesus commands us. Obedience is prime. Obedience is love. In John 14, Jesus tells us, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, obey me. He also knows that we can't do this perfectly, so what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit to help us. Because it's the Holy Spirit that helps us and empowers us to be obedient. So Matthew continues in verse 8 and says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! 
Hosanna in the highest heaven. So the, the, the crowds are placing their coats and these palm branches here. John is really the only gospel that talks about them being palm branches. But they do this to honor Jesus. This is a form of honoring him. And they honor him as, this, as a great triumphant liberator. This act demonstrated recognition, loyalty, and support. How long did that last? We'll find out at the end of next week. But they shout Hosanna, which means literally save us now. And they add the phrase, the son of David, which is a clear recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. This was the cry of an oppressed people yearning for deliverance in their time of trouble. So friends, this is where the crowd's expectations and reality begin to diverge. See, the crowds expected a warrior savior that would free them from the Roman oppression. They wanted physical liberation. They didn't want spiritual liberation. They understood their need to be freed from the Romans, what they didn't understand is their need to be saved from their sin. Oh, Jesus knew what they wanted. He knew exactly what they wanted. But more importantly, he knew what they needed. He came to deliver them from their sin and give them salvation. And friends, that is the same thing that he does for us. But see, those people, they didn't want it. That's not what they wanted. So in five short days, those shouts went from Hosanna to crucify him. The crowd that had hailed him as the son of David would soon be calling for his death. So what does this mean for us today? What are our expectations? What is it that we want from Jesus? I mean, are we really much different than this crowd? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. What we want is blessing, right? We want to be blessed. We want to cash in on the blessings of Jesus. You know, people love the prosperity gospel, don't they? They love the prosperity gospel. They want to be told, you know, give your life to Jesus and everything will be okay. You know, give a little bit of money and, and, and suddenly your debt will be gone. Your, your mortgage will be miraculously paid. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus guarantees it. But, but, he goes on to say, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's the voice that we heard from heaven last week. Listen to him. Let's quickly finish here with verses 10 and 11. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The 
crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So we see here now Jesus has moved into the city proper. The crowds that first greeted him were crowds on the outskirts of the city. Now he's moved into the city. And it says that the whole city was stirred. And the Greek word here is the Greek word asis. And it's where we get the word seismology, which is a study of what? Earthquakes, right? So what Matthew is saying here is that the city of Jerusalem shook. It was all shook up. And this word, this word is only used two other times in the Gospels. Two other times. The earth shook at Jesus' death and right before his resurrection. And this reminds us, friends, that way back in Matthew chapter 2, When the Magi were searching for the one who was born the king of the Jews, they came to Jerusalem and asked about him. And it said that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The city was disturbed. Now Jesus returns to Jerusalem as the conquering Messiah. And the city is shaken. And friends, Jesus has been disturbing and shaking the world ever since. And the world has been asking the same question that was asked back then. Who is this? Who is this man, Jesus? You know, the crowd outside recognized him as the Messiah. But inside, they're saying, ah, he's just a prophet. Just a guy from Nazareth. So, friends, it seems that we keep coming around and we keep landing on this question, who do you say Jesus is? And as we've said previously, we must wrestle with and we must answer this question. And it doesn't matter what your expectations of Jesus are. He is who he is. He's not who you want him to be. He is who he is. He's the one and only son of God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am. Clearly echoing the words from Exodus chapter 3 where God said, I am who I am. And that makes sense because Jesus, friends, is God. And it doesn't matter, friends, what you expect him to do for you today. It doesn't matter what you expect. Jesus knows what you need. He knows what you need in every situation, and he will provide according to God's perfect will. But most importantly, he came to bring salvation. He came to save us from our sins that we might enjoy eternity with him. May we honor him this Palm Sunday as our conquering Savior, the humble king who came to die for us.
Heavenly Father, we come to you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed your identity in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have through the sacrifice that you were willing to make. It's the reason that you came. It's the reason that you triumphantly entered this world humbly. And it's the reason that you entered Jerusalem humbly. And Lord, we just thank you that you humbled yourself to be obedient even to death on a cross. Because that is our only hope in this world and in the next. Father, we thank you for your blessing. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.